From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Hello? Hey, Dad. Hi. Uh, let me pick this up on another phone. I can barely hear you. About a year ago, this thing happened to me when I took the train down to visit my dad in Baltimore. And when this thing happened, he said to me, you know, this could be a story on your show. So this week I called him up to have him and my stepmom tell the story. You remember what happened with the business with the train and your suit? You left it on the train. It was in a hanging bag, and you left it on the compartment over your seat by mistake. So I said, well, what are you going to do? And you said, well... I said, well, apparently you can go to Amtrak and they'll retrieve your luggage at the train's next stop and throw it onto the next Amtrak that's headed back to you. But the problem was my dad had tickets to the Baltimore Symphony that night. And the train that was hopefully going to arrive with my suit, that is, if everything went perfectly, 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 that train would arrive. I think 6.30, as, as I remember, uh, or quarter of 7, and, and the symphony was at 8 o'clock. So, of course, this so was very, very worrisome. And before I go any further in this story, I should say, this is the 400th episode of our radio show. There are eight of us who make the show, working together really closely, finding stories and shaping them. And for years, as we made those 399 other episodes, all those years, family members have approached us at weddings and holidays with all kinds of ideas for the show, most of which have never made it onto the air because, don't be frank, they were not so great. And this week we thought... Okay, it's our 400th show. We should do something we've never done before. Something so difficult we have never dared do it before. And we thought, you know, after tackling all the subjects we have over the years, productions of Peter Pan gone awry and investigations into Guantanamo and trying to make the history of mortgage-backed securities into entertaining radio, what would be the greatest challenge? What would be the greatest challenge that we could possibly attempt for our 400th show? And the answer obvious. Let's do all of those stories pitched to us by our parents. Stories where it's it's not even clear whether it's humanly possible to make them into listenable stories on the radio. So, hence this story with the suit. Okay, you remember where we are? Okay, we're worried about the train and the suit. And we were mulling around about what to do about it, and meanwhile eating some late lunch. And it was at lunch that my stepmom, Sandy, got an idea. Let's buy a cheap suit at Marshall's, just in case the train doesn't come in. Marshall's is nearby. I've, I've seen a lot of suits there that were really good price, sometimes $100. And, you know, it could work. And your, and your, and your plan was, we're going to buy a suit. Let's try to get a suit for like 100 bucks, with the thought that if I don't wear it, you'll just return it the next day. That's right. We didn't have much time, so we hustled over to Marshall's, where we learned that Marshall's actually doesn't sell many suits. They literally have two suits in the store. Miraculously, one fits. But another obstacle, the pants. The pants need hemming. Though if we hemmed them, of course, we wouldn't be able to return the suit. What to do? What do we do? And I said, uh, scotch tape. (laughs) Scotch tape it. So that was the plan. It went off like a great bank heist, like the sting, like like Ocean's Eleven. 
I got the suit at Marshall's. The train came in. It had my real suit. I changed into the real suit in the bathroom at the train station. We go to the Baltimore Symphony, which was, by the way, fantastic. They got this new conductor. We went home, removed the scotch tape from the suit, and returned it on Monday. Everything came out great. And it was just like a normal visit from you, Ira. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Well, you know, sometimes things like this happens. Wait, what, what, what do you mean? What, what kinds of things? You know, it's always, uh, it's always excitement when you come to Baltimore. <laughs> Are you saying that the thing that, that happens every time I come is that there's no, some no, kind of no. unnecessary chaos? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. No? No. Now, now, you know, now usually a story on the on the show, you know, for it to work, there it needs to kind of have a, some bigger idea or some bigger universal thing that it drives towards. Do you think there is something like that with this story? Uh, not, not a, no, not at all. Well, at least you could tell. Today, for our 400th show, each of us who worked on the radio show went to our parents, got them to pitch a story or repitched one that they had pitched in the past, and then the idea was. We each had to make the story they pitched. But there is more. Uh, Can I have a a musical transition, please? So we're gathered here, not in our studio, which actually isn't big enough for all of us to fit, but in our office, in the uh, room where we have our weekly story meetings. So it's nine of us sitting here at microphones uh, and looking around the room. It's Robin Semyon. Hi. Jane Feltus. Hi. Alyssa Shipp. Present. Seth Lind. Yeah. That's our production manager, Seth Lind. Uh, Sarah Koenig. Hello. Alex Bloomberg. Hello. Hello. That would be Lisa Pollock <laughs> jumping the gun. And finally, our senior producer, Julie Snyder. Hello. Nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of our producers, uh, Nancy Updike, was called away and isn't here. But we're gathered here together today because not only are all of you uh, attempting to execute some of the most difficult stories you ever have, if that were not hard enough, we're going to make it a contest. The ground rules are these. We're going to play each producer's story. We'll all listen together. And then at the end of the show, we're going to come back on the air together and decide which story was best. Not only will this determine once and for all who is the greatest producer in radio. (laughs) (laughs) There's a prize that we all decided on together at our real story meeting this week. I forgot. I forgot what the prize is. Is Isn't that the winning parent gets a plane ticket to come visit their, their child producer? Yes. Child. <laughs> and that's how I refer to all of you as the child producers. <laughs> Though we also acknowledge that maybe we have no perspective on these stories because who has perspective on their own family and their ideas. And so um, we also want to turn to you, everybody listening over the radio. You will all hear these stories at the end of the program. Go to our website and vote for your favorite. And if you listeners vote for a different winner than we choose here amongst ourselves, then a second parent will get a trip to see their kid. Wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> Runner up. All right. And so let the games begin. Our first story is from Lisa Pollock. It's funny what your parents forget to tell you until you're recording them for national broadcast. Here's what my mom said when I asked her for a story idea. Yeah, what if you get a story on planning your funerals before you, before you die? Because that's what we're doing now. She explained that she and my dad had recently bought their cemetery plots. Apparently all their friends were making plans for eternity, and they thought they should jump on the bandwagon, too. I wasn't really sure why she was laughing, but she seemed convinced there was a funny idea in here, somewhere. 
there's got to be funny stories about death, and they've never done that on your on your show. Yeah, they have. We have. What, what do you mean, a funny story about death? Yeah. Death and, not death, but dying and, you know, the burial things. Well, have you been to any funny funerals? I went to one hysterical funeral. We, I started laughing, and Dad was laughing. And you know how when you start to laugh and then you're trying to stifle it because you're at a funeral? I was busting a gut. I was laughing so hard, and Dad, too. What was so funny? What was so funny, Mitch? It was the whole, I don't know what. It was just <laughs> fabulous. It was the best funeral I've ever been to. So this was the idea. Find funny stories about funerals. Stories kind of like my mom's, only actually explaining the funny parts. I started looking, and the first thing I found was a New York Times story from January 1902. Clearly I wasn't the first reporter whose mother had this idea. The headline read, Humors of Funerals. The funny side of a gruesome subject as seen by clergymen. Or, as I like to imagine a clergyman would say it in 1902, The funny side of a gruesome subject as seen by clergymen. The story was a collection of anonymous anecdotes, like this one. The first Sunday, after I had been installed in my first church, I discovered there was to be a funeral and was asked to officiate. On asking who was dead, I learned it was a child of seven days whose mother had died in the county poorhouse and the accident of whose advent into the world was in defiance of at least one item of the Decalogue. I thought, of course, there would be no mourners. Okay, so the setup's a little dark. But then, to the clergyman's surprise, a whole crowd of mourners show up. They bring food. And a real picnic scene outspread itself around the church. It was the sexton who, on seeing my surprise, explained in all seriousness, You see, parson. There has been neither a lynching nor a wedding in this section for so long that the people have to make the most they can out of a funeral. Okay, that didn't work. So I turned to a more contemporary source, a book called The Funny Side of Death, published in 2008. The author is a retired funeral homeowner who says his sense of humor helped him cope with the job. On page 97, for example, he explains how dead people's hip replacements, which are metal and stay intact after cremation, can be, quote, shined up and presented to friends as letter openers. At this point, I started making phone calls. First to the National Funeral Directors Association. I told them what I was looking for, and they said they had the perfect person to help me. And the next thing I knew, I was on hold, waiting to talk to a funeral director in Decatur, Illinois, named Randy Earl. You know, nothing puts me in the mood for a humorous anecdote, like the stuff they play when you're on hold at the funeral home. At Brent Linker and Earl Funeral Homes, we wanted to let you know about prearrangement planning. It's an easy way for you to take the worry of your burial or cremation needs away from your loved ones during a very difficult time. Hello, this is Randy. Randy said he'd been expecting my call and that he had a great story. It was about a man who came in one day to make prearrangements for his funeral. The man had his kids with him, and one of the things they all talked about was what music to play at the man's service. I said, what's your favorite song? He said, well, Silent Night. And the kids laughed. They sort of laughed at him. And even the daughter, she said, well, Dad, what is it with Silent Night? And he said, well, it was at the end of the war, and they had just declared the war over. And I was sitting in a foxhole, and the first song I heard was Silent Night, and that's my favorite song. And I said, um, well, Bob, we'll, we'll use that at your funeral service. As fate would have it, the man died in July. 
And at the church where the service was supposed to be, the whole silent night idea wasn't going over so well. Church organist calls me, and he said, uh, that's not even in our liturgy. And he said, I'm not playing silent night when you're exiting a church. So I sat there for a minute, and I said, well, I might have to get another organist, but I promised him that we're going to do this, and somehow I am going to do this. So we go to church, we have the funeral mass, and the priest told the story. Bob requested that this song be played because it was his favorite song. And he was in a foxhole when he heard that the war was over, and this was the song that he heard played right after that. And it's the middle of July, and they played that very softly as we exited the church, and they started singing very quietly. And it was the most moving, powerful thing that I've experienced in a long, long time. But but not a funny story. No, no, it's not a funny story. It's not a funny story. It's a real story. <laughs> if you're looking for funny, I'm probably not your guy because I'm not a funny guy with my work. Even if I did have something uh, in my repertoire, I would not put it out on the radio or I just wouldn't do it. It turns out that in the funeral business, humor can be a touchy subject. As Ron Hast, publisher of Mortuary Management Magazine, told me. There's always people who are trying to make fun. Uh, oh, I understand that everyone's dying to come to you. Ha, ha, ha. I've heard it 5,000 times, and they think it's so funny, and they laugh and whatever. Well, it's just stupid is what it is. It's not funny. It's not funny. Ron spent so much time warning me about the pitfalls of this story idea, how funny things don't really happen all that often in his business, how outsiders like me tend to exaggerate and embellish, that when he actually gave me exactly what I was looking for, I was afraid to react. And instead of laughing, I asked a dumb question that killed his whole punchline. There was a lady who was sitting at a funeral, uh, and she had had her father's funeral in the same funeral home about a month before. And she uh, happened to notice that the funeral director uh, there doing this funeral, there was another person, that he was wearing her father's tie. And what had happened was she realized that, that when he went and shut the casket down out of the view of the family. He liked the tie, too, and took it off and closed the lid and kept it for himself. They went so far as to have them have the grave open to prove that he had taken it and uh, sued him. And, and, and he lost, I'm guessing. I don't know what the outcome is, but, but you, you know, you don't follow all that stuff. Through. At this point, I gave up on funeral directors and called a Lutheran minister I know. His name's Duke Fries. Pastor Fries told me a story about the time he finished doing a funeral service and made this dignified exit in front of a room full of people, only to realize... That I had chosen the wrong door, that I was now in a closet. <laughs> and I wasn't sure whether to step back out with all these people watching or just stay in this closet until I heard them moving around, which is in fact what I did. Finally, I was getting somewhere. I kept at it, and before long... I had more stories than I knew what to do with. There was the overzealous mourner who fell into the grave during the funeral, a woman who wanted to be buried topless to show off her breast job, and a funeral home worker who lifted a woman out of her bed, only to realize that her husband in the next bed over was the dead one. But I wasn't so sure any of these were what my mom was looking for. None of them were like that funeral she went to, where... I was busting a gut. I was laughing so hard. I was just about to give up looking when our intern, Brian Reed, 
told me I had to call his friend Rob. So I did. And after that, I made one last call. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Lee. So you know how I've been looking for funny funeral stories? Uh-huh. I have one I want to play for you. Okay. Um, what's that in the background? It's taking something out of the oven. Oh. So there's going to be two people telling the story. Their names are Rob and Andrea. They're married. And the funeral is for Andrea's grandmother. Uh-huh. It takes place in a Ukrainian church. And they don't totally know what's going on because the priest is speaking Ukrainian. Okay. Okay. And the first thing that got us silly was that the priest looks exactly like Bill Murray. Like, exactly. So like they're Murray, already... Like Bill Murray circa meatballs with the hair sticking up. and the, So um, they, they started the service, and, and it's all in Ukrainian. I mean, they're not speaking any English whatsoever. So the priest decides he's going to start speaking in a little bit of English, and he's read, apparently it's custom in the Ukrainian church, if someone passes away, you give a donation to the church in that person's name. So he, he literally is listing off the people's names and how much they gave to the church. So, and if it was a good amount, he kind of smiles. He's like, Mr. Zizninsky, $50. He gives a little smile. And if it was like a low amount, he's like, you know, the Zagrakshis, $5. And he gives like a disappointing look like, oh, not good, you know. And he's doing this whole list over and over. He goes through this whole list of money, and, and you know, people are adding up the money in their head. So then he decides he's going to do a bit of a eulogy. Yeah, he does a eulogy in English for us because he knows that we really don't speak speak Ukrainian. So he comes right in front of us, and he says... And Andrea's uh, maiden name is Drobish, D-R-O-B-I-S-H. And that was my grandmother's name was Barbara Drobish. So he comes right in front of us, and he says... He says, he says, Barbara Drobish was a good lay. <laughs> D. And that just So then Andrea's sister and her, they start to uh, laugh, and they're, they're shaking when they're laughing, and they're, and they're trembling. And I think people, especially the people in the, uh, the Ukrainian church, thought, thought they were literally crying, like weeping very hard. So the people from the Ukrainian church are now coming around, surrounding them and hugging them. Oh, the poor God, children! And they're crying. And they're crying. Which is making us laughing. So everyone is crying except us <laughs> who are laughing hysterically and trying to hide the fact that we're laughing and try not to mock the Ukrainian church. So that's our... And that's the funny story. I like it. You like it? <laughs> I think it's funny. It reminded me of a Seinfeld. So she didn't bust a gut. But maybe for my mom. That only happens at funerals. <laughs> it's really funny. Wait, I don't get the little final line. The last line was, was uh, she didn't bust a gut, but she only does that at funerals. But she did bust a gut. She, no, she didn't bust a gut. That's the problem. She laughed. I feel like you guys are dwelling on the last line. That was amazing. That was great. Oh, no. really. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's I wasn't really dwelling. Great. I just, there was a moment. I was confused. I'm nervous. <laughs> You're nervous? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Beat that. I know. You reported the crap out of it. That was the I thing that was we so amazing. I thought supposed to. No, I, re- I did some reporting. <laughs> I did some reporting. But I thought that was going to be my strong suit. I was like, well, my story sucks. But I did some reporting. So I'm going to – but I didn't do as much reporting as you did. All right. Well, our next story is from uh, Nancy Updike, who recorded the story but couldn't be here with us. I talked to my dad. Uh, he pitched me this idea a year ago, actually. Kind of caught me off guard with this one. The Erie Canal. What about the Erie Canal? Well, you know, it's a famous 
old waterway dug with a lot of brutal labor, yeah. manual labor, you know, a lot of it, and um, uh, it was a tremendous feat of engineering and generated lots of songs, and there was traffic that went along it and things like that, but it it didn't last very long. I mean, the railroads came, and then the trucks came, and the water transport went out of fashion. Uh, you know, and it, the question is kind of what what's become of it. And before I answer that question, I just want to quickly remind our listeners of everything they, of course, already know about the canal. Longest canal in the U.S. when it was built, 363 miles, linking Lake Erie and the rest of the Great Lakes to the Atlantic via the Hudson River, dug by hand with shovels and pre-industrial tools before our country was even 50 years old. And it was our first big success in physically uniting the United States by connecting the built-up East Coast with the Midwest. This is Craig Williams, curator at the New York State Museum. It must have been tremendously exciting. They were doing something unprecedented. They were building a canal to the moon. And it must have been tremendously confidence-building for a society that was still an incredibly young republic that they could pull something like this off. So I did find out what became of the canal and some things you just cannot express in words alone. The canal is too big. So I wrote a song with my friend Dave Hill. Give it to me, woman. Easy, easy. They were building a canal to the moon. A canal to the moon. What do you do with the canal to the moon when the railroad gets you there a lot more soon? You'd rather drive your car anyway, and you don't want to go from Buffalo to Albany. But let's say you're a nuclear power plant and you need massive concrete containers for your spent fuel rods. Do a lot worse than ship them via the Erie Canal. It's still in use. So you call up Rob Goldman at the New York State Marine Transportation Authority because... If you want to go from New York to Montreal, we can save you a thousand miles. It's true. We can save you a thousand miles. He already said that. But what do you do with the canal to the moon when your town or your city is past its industrial boom? No more millions of tons of cargo floating by. More like thousands. Just better than nothing, but still. How about this, though? You could hike, you could bike. Uh, the, the trail is now being completed across the state. He's talking about a 360-mile trail alongside the canal system that's two-thirds complete. Quite a feat. And don't forget. In many places, the locks are parks, so you could go and, and have a cookout. There are tables there. Uh, you could read a book, take a nap, go to a restaurant, uh, bring your kids, feed the ducks. Ducks? Everyone likes ducks. I like ducks. It just goes on and on. And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. What do you do with a canal to the moon when some people, maybe you, 
complain three, four times a year in op-eds up in Rochester, saying, Why are we spending all this money for rich people to take their yachts from Florida to uh, Lake Erie? But here's what you do with a canal to the moon. Put a canoe in it, or a tire, or a kayak. Or like a floaty lawn chair. Go ice fishing, play hockey. It's water. This one guy was telling me the canal is like Makeout City. So that's what you do with With a canal to the moon. It was the eighth wonder of the world when it was built. We're not just going to fill it with concrete. We nailed it. Well, everybody, what do you think? Nancy Updike with uh, Dave Hill, by the way. Yay! <laughs> Very nice. Very inventive. <laughs> I think it's great. I don't know if I know more. I mean, I know like kind of a little more about the Erie Canal, but I still can't picture the... Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like I don't really know anything actually about, about the Erie it. Canal. <laughs> I think you guys are missing the point of this story. That was kick-ass. She wrote a song and performed it. All right, well, our next story is from Alex Bloomberg. My dad doesn't watch much TV. He hates sports. He's an atheist. His main pastime is reading. Books on Buddhism, philosophy. He loves William Blake and science books and left-leaning blogs. And his story ideas... They're generally big and abstract. For example, when I called him for this project the other night, one idea he thought I should do a story about was the idea of coming out of the closet. This idea has been so key, he said, in advancing the cause of gay rights, and he wanted me to do a story about how other groups should adopt the tactics of coming out in order to seek mainstream acceptance. What other groups? Atheists, also people who don't like sports. His other idea, at least initially, seemed equally as unpromising. The fact that law treats corporations as if they were people. He'd been thinking about the idea of corporate personhood for years, but it was especially on his mind during the conversation I had with him, which took place just a couple of days after that Supreme Court decision overturning large parts of campaign finance law. That decision, the Citizens United case, basically said there is no distinction between a corporation spending a lot of money on campaign ads and a regular person doing it. In the eyes of the law, the corporation can buy as many ads as it wants. To my dad, that seems crazy. And dangerous. We've kind of created these these Goliaths, these Godzillas, parading around as if they were people, but in fact they have a kind of power that no individual person could ever begin to amass. Right. So there is this entity called Exxon Corporation. Uh huh. And you read newspaper stories about Exxon says, or Exxon was furious. You've never read a sentence that said Exxon was furious, have you? Well, Exxon, Exxon was upset. So, uh, so who, who should I talk to, though? Well, that's, that's, I think that's the story idea, is who do you talk to? Who becomes the voice of Exxon. So the idea would be, I would, I would call, I would try to, it would be in search of Exxon. In search of Exxon. Who, who, who is this? We treat them as a, we treat them as a person. And, and who do they think they are? 
do you think you are? <laughs> All right. I, I will try to do that. I'll try to find out who Exxon thinks they are. I'm not going to lie. This didn't go well. I called Exxon and spoke to a media relations person there, told her about how my dad and I had this conversation, and I wanted to find out who Exxon thought it was. The lady was very nice, but she said she didn't see any reason Exxon would ever want to talk to me about this. And this way, Exxon is just like a lot of people. If they don't want to talk to the media, you can't really make them. I called around to other multinational corporations. Same answer. Then I tried the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the trade group for most of American business. The guy there was a little bit more receptive, and he called me back with a name. Eugene Volok. He's the guy you should talk to. Although when I reached Eugene Volok, he couldn't explain why the Chamber of Commerce sent me to him. You know, uh, I am not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think somebody in the Chamber of Commerce reads my blog. So Eugene Volok turns out not to be a spokesman for corporate America in any way. He's a charming, libertarian-leaning law professor at UCLA. He runs a popular blog called The Volok Conspiracy, though he's written a lot about constitutional issues in the Citizens United case. And the more we talked, the more I had to let go of my Michael Moore dreams, asking stunty questions designed to expose the fallacy of corporate personhood, such as, what's Exxon's favorite color? Or what does Exxon want for Christmas? Or who's Exxon's favorite beetle? That line of questioning, Eugene Volok told me in so many words, is stupid. Corporations are generally seen as having many constitutional rights, but it's not because somehow they're metaphysically persons. It's because restricting corporations in various ways restricts the rights of persons. It restricts uh, the rights of their owners, and it restricts uh, perhaps the rights of others. Others being, for example, people who want to hear what the corporation has to say. All right, I'm just going to stop here and say, by the time I got to this point in my conversation with Eugene Volok, I already knew that the story my dad wanted me to do was in trouble. So, Dad, if you don't mind, I took up a different question. And the question I took up is this. How worried should he be about the Citizens United case? <sighs> okay, a little background on the idea of corporations as people. When it comes to property rights, corporations are basically the same as you and I. The government can't take away their property without due process. That's protected under the 14th Amendment. But when it comes to something like the Fifth Amendment, which says you can't be forced to incriminate yourself in a court of law, corporations are not covered. All those TV dramas and congressional hearings where people plead the fifth, Exxon can't do that. So corporations are legally like people in some respects and unlike them in others. And it's in this context that the issue of corporate spending on campaigns comes up. The Supreme Court has dealt with this issue a handful of times over the last century. Okay, stop, stop the tape. On. Stop the tape. Okay, okay. I'm just going to point out what's going on here. Paul, our engineer, with all due respect, briefly fell asleep. <laughs> Alex, meanwhile, um, had to leave to go to a meeting for his other. He works on Planet Money, and they had a big meeting, so he's not even here to defend himself. <laughs> I, I, I just I stopped. Um, yeah, I went somewhere else. Well, I know, no. And we did an edit on it the other day, and I said in this section, like, I didn't follow it at all. And then Iris said that that was because you said it was because we were girls. <laughs> 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 That was a joke. Um, I just, I just want to say that I really did like that he took his dad's idea and said it didn't work, and I'm going to redirect to my own idea. I thought that was a very clever. I, I did think. I think he's a good son to take it on. So they should be proud that he just did such a boring story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so uh, so it's looking very very bad for Alex in our competition. Coming up, 
more stories pitched by our parents, who, by the way, we all love very, very, very much. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. It is our 400th episode, and if you're just tuning in, we're doing something very different. After all these years of family members pitching us stories for the show, this week we actually go out and make the stories that our family members pitched. The staff of the radio show and I are sitting here in our office meeting room. Hi, everybody again. Hello. Hello. Hi. We're listening to uh, each of the stories, and at the end of the hour, we're going to decide which story was best, which parent pitched the best story. Whoever it is will get a prize. We're also asking you to vote online at thisamericanlife.org. Our next story up is from producer Robin Semyon. When I asked my dad to think of an idea he'd like to pitch, he took it to mean one thing, a clear opportunity to tell his favorite story. Believe it or not, this is all the way back in the 1950s. <laughs> That's right, 1950s. So this was before... It's like before the invention of fire, Dad. That's <laughs> you're making it sound like. This story usually takes him a little over an hour to tell. It's about how he souped up a car when he was 20. But before he tells you about that car, he always tells you about another car, his starter car, a 1953 Oldsmobile. When he was growing up in Richmond, California, which is near Oakland, there was a fad among teens to take some chrome off a car and paint primer where the chrome used to be. My dad took the trend a step further. He took the door handles off his car. That's right, the door handles, and painted circles of gray primer where the handles used to be. That was being cool. There wasn't a whole lot of people running around that had cars that didn't have door handles on them. And, and then naturally, they'd want to know, how do you open the door? You'd open the door, or my dad would open the door, by pressing the button he'd hidden in the chrome trim of the car. It was an electric button that triggered a solenoid, which released the door latch. My dad was obsessed with electronics and wondered what else in the car he could trick out. The radio, the lights. One day, I don't know why, the idea just came to me, well... Sure, it would be nice if there was only one switch. If I had one switch to control all of this. And just as fast, it came to me, how could you possibly have one switch to do everything? That's impossible. And so just as fast as the idea came up, the idea went away. Because I said, that's impossible. It don't make any sense. After a while, my dad bought another car, a used 56 Lincoln Premier Convertible. And the attraction was that everything in the car was electric. Power seats, power windows, the convertible top. It was the perfect laboratory for my dad. His job at the time was at a place where they were manufacturing parts for CB radios. And these particular CB radios had rotary dials on them, like on a telephone, connected to a switch inside. And he was at work one day inspecting those rotary dials when it hit him. He had his Thomas Edison moment. The guy dialed three to switch it. Move three times. If you dial six, it, it moves six times. And I looked at that, and it just came back to me and said, there's my switch. There is my switch. For the next eight months, my dad locked himself in his room. His plan was this. He'd attach all of the car's power circuits to a metal box using hundreds of relays, all controlled by a rotary dial from an old princess phone, the kind which had a little light behind it. This was the star of the show and needed a prime location, the center of the steering wheel. 
So I guess the reward for doing all of that was the day when it was finally finished and I put it in the car and I call your grandfather out and he came out and sat in the car and, and so he was sitting over on the passenger side and he was leaning up, had his arm on the window and I said, but this is what I was doing. And he kind of looked at it like, what were you doing? And my hand reached for the uh, for the steering wheel towards the prince's dial, and he saw the light turn on as my hand reached for it. It was a cute little trick. I had a switch underneath my brake pedal on the floor that, that put power to the dial. I could not have power to the dial at all times. Anybody could play around with that switch and make all stuff happen. They may not know what's going on. So... When I reached for it, the light turned on, and which power, and I dialed once, I dialed twice, I dialed three times. And when I dialed the fourth time, and the engine started, and then I saw his eyes kind of, no, that didn't just happen. But before he had a chance to really recover from that, I dialed three more numbers real quick, and all of a sudden the window started coming up, moving his arm off the side of the door. And I dialed three more numbers, and the other window came up, and I dialed three more numbers, and the top started coming up. And so I just kind of flooded. I kept dialing, dial after dial after dial real fast to make all these things operate before he had a chance to think about it all. So you did it. I did it. One switch. And my daughters, they never knew about it. I didn't talk too much about it, but they were around it. (laughs) They were around it all of their life growing up. That's my sister Sean and me laughing in the background. My dad really thinks we don't know this story. Sean, how many times do you think you've heard the car story? Probably a couple times a year for like as long as I can remember. So I don't know, like 30, 50, something like that. I've heard the story at least as many times as my sister. My uncle Rocky, who was 16 when my dad built the Lincoln, has probably heard it the most. Oh, God. <laughs> at, least a, at least a hundred times. My friends Ellen and Anya have both heard it separately. My boyfriend Damien. Yeah, I've heard it. Uh, in detail, probably twice, but loosely six or seven times. In fact, the night my dad pitched me the car story, my niece Alexis, who's 15, was listening. Alexis also had a story idea, but we never got to it. Because when my dad started in on the car story, she could not last him. And I got like really tired. I just knew that it probably was just going to keep going like that. So I decided that I should probably get some sleep. The whole thing that got me was that, and just as quickly as the idea came, it went away. Because I knew that can't be the end of the story. <laughs> Obviously, there's a whole nother section. Right, you know, he's just like ramping up. Exactly. My nephew Jameson, who's 11, also heard the story that same night. My dad says Jameson's the lucky grandchild who'll inherit the box and dial. Jameson's take on the story? Um, if I were, like, more patient, then it would have sounded like a good story. When we were young, there was a lesson attached to this story, that when you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. But when I ask my dad today why this is the story he tells over and over, what's the point of this story, 
He says he's just proud that he had an idea that nobody else did. I point out to my dad that his invention was completely impractical. It's way harder to dial a secret code than to just push the button that opens the window. He says that's not the point. It was cool. It made him stand out. And if anyone wanted the window down or the radio on, they had to go through him. Nice. That was so nice. That was amazing. Yeah. I love your dad. Well, that worked so well because it was about him. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. like yeah. like outside of him, and then but not just that. But you you made it not the story, but about the fact of it. And uh, yeah, it was cool. Okay, so this is a good place to say that uh, two of our producers put together stories that didn't uh, work out so well. Um, Alyssa Ship, uh, one of our producers, called her mom and got into this pretty uh, heavy conversation. And and the most arable part of it was this one moment uh, they they got talking about this moment with her grandmother in the hospital. And it's 16 seconds long. Bubby on on her deathbed, actually, the last time I visited her, and she was kind of whispering something, and we bent down to listen to her, and she said, I'm bored. Does no one else think that's funny? <laughs> I think that's funny. I, I always think, I, I, I think feel it's like... it's so funny. It's like my, my nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how I imagine it being, too. And then our next story is uh, from Sarah Canning, also a shorty. Um, so my mom's story idea wasn't, strictly speaking, a story or, strictly speaking, an idea. It was about a conversation she's had dozens of times with my daughter, Ava, who's six. My granddaughter always asking me why I celebrate Christmas. Well, why do you do Christmas? You're Jewish. But I said, my parents did it. And it was a big tradition in our family, and we liked it, and I wanted to carry on the tradition. And she said, but you're Jewish. Why do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) She's never content with my answer. I figured maybe there was some cognitive reason for Ava's confusion. Like that at her age, she simply could not compute a contradiction, that somebody Jewish would do something not Jewish. So I talked to a couple of child psychologists, and they told me I was right that this question is taxing Ava's prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain where we store information about rule-governed behavior, like how we're supposed to act. And they said it might take a couple of years for Ava's prefrontal cortex to, to get it. This is Karen Bierman. She's written books about child development. Your daughter's right at that cusp. She's got a category. She's got a clear category of what it means to be Jewish. And um, her grandmother doesn't fit that category in any way that she can see. So that, that's a more uh, challenging cognition. Anyhow, none of this felt very um, gripping. So to sum up, I wrote a little ditty about Ava's situation with her grandmother, who she calls Yaya. The tune is borrowed, by the way. When your Yaya gets a tree And you know that it shouldn't be Look her straight in the eye Ask why. Ask why. Ask why. Ask why. Ask why. Don't you eat that that Christmas stew? You're a Jew. (laughs) You're a Jew. You're a Jew. You're a Jew. 
You're a Jew. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's so cute. More song. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I, mean, I would. I would have ended the song a little earlier. <laughs> I had enough of the. I had enough of the cuteness. I was ready for it to end like twenty seconds earlier. But the giggle, give me the yeah, giggle. Yeah. The giggle's pretty good. You just hate children and Jews. It's true. It's true. <laughs> we never have any kids. We never have any Jews. <laughs> All right. Well, our last story today comes from Jane Feltis. I called my dad, and obviously he was super stoked to help me with this project. Here's the thing. It's pretty boring these days, and especially here in sunny Michigan. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you want ideas, here's some stuff. That was my dad's attempt at modesty. Turns out he's kind of a pitching machine. The stuff I could do stories about ranged from, can you believe GM is bringing 800 jobs to Michigan rather than moving them out? Or why don't you guys follow up on that story you did a few years ago about some vigilante border patrol guys down on the Mexican border? I want to know if they're still there, if they finally got guns. Then somehow we got on the topic of how to make solar energy efficient, which led to the wave-particle duality of photons, and that led to... So does the particle aspect come in regular intervals, like a machine gun, or if they go pop, like popcorn? Right. And then naturally... You know, like how big does a planet have to be to have a molten core? And then, finally... I think Harry Brakeman is fascinating. What? (laughs) You know Harry Brakeman? At first I was like, who... But then I remembered that Harry Brakeman was the pastor at my Grandma Ruth's Methodist Church a while back. Now he's retired, and he and his wife live in eastern Michigan out in the country. They live in this little tiny house over in Port Huron, Mm -hmm. like Ruth and Bill's house, like, you know, 1,200 square feet. Uh, They started this school down in Haiti, which is an American thing to do. We like to do that, go out in the world and start school to make people like us. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a university. What? Yeah, Brakeman University. Medical school, I think, they're trying to put together. Uh, they got a uh, four-year college. with I think they have some grad programs. Brakeman University is what it's called. The Methodist I kind of doubted this story from the jump. Like, maybe he had a church there. And it's possible that they taught a Sunday school, but then someone was talking to somebody and it turned into a game of telephone. And in the end, everyone in Michigan thinks Harry Brakeman's like running the Harvard of the Caribbean. Their story fascinates me. And it was Harry's deal from the beginning to the end. Okay, so that phone call, that was a week before the earthquake in Haiti. So then the earthquake happened, and I found myself worried about this school that I didn't even know if it existed. I was born right here, where I'm almost where I'm sitting right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Brakeman, 87 years old, in his home in Clyde, Michigan. And Harry says, it's true. There is a school. Back in the 70s, a missionary visits Harry's church, and he's talking about some work he's doing in Haiti, and would Harry want to join in and help? So, in 1976, the Brakemans fly into Port-au-Prince for the first time. We got a truck that picked us up and took us to the church, and the mom said, you're preaching here. And I said, I'm what? He said, you're preaching. Not here. So I, that was, had fun. It was the largest Protestant church in Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. And I never had such an experience in my life. But I was, I was scared. I knew my knees were almost shaking and knocking. And I said, Lord, you got me in a mess, and you got to get me out of here. But he didn't. And I'm not an evangelist. I've never done that kind of work. I was just always a pastor. Mm-hmm. But when I got done the preaching, the people just flooded to the altar. Really? The team called me another Billy Graham. Now, I've heard Harry's sermons, and to tell you the truth, they sound pretty much like this conversation. 
He's not all filled with the spirit or anything, so you can see how special this was. He toured around the island and saw how people lived. And that opened my eyes up a lot. I never seen people so poor in my life. I, my, my heart was broken. My pocketbook was broken, too. Yeah. <laughs> His missionary work took him to a small town called Petiguav, or Tiguav, about 40 miles west of Port-au-Prince on a two-lane highway. It's a little fishing town on the coast, kind of a commercial center for all the tiny villages in the mountains that surround it. They were building churches, and Harry had the idea to build a school. The work was hard, hauling construction supplies from Port-au-Prince and working crazy hours to avoid the midday sun. What wasn't as difficult was finding volunteers. When Michigan construction jobs dried up every winter, Harry said they found plenty of people happy to spend a few months warming up in Haiti. We'd gone back, and then we stayed back in those villages. They'd, they'd have rice mats in their houses, and they'd let us sleep in houses. And we would sleep and work, work and sleep. I remember I started singing a song, learning to lean, learning to lean, learning to lean on Jesus, finding more strength than I ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on him. And we would also start singing that when things got kind of rough for us. And as the students grew, the classes grew, and so on and so forth, until they had 650 students and 42 teachers, all of them Haitian. They taught preschool through junior college, and then two years ago added university-level courses. They're affiliated with a medical campus in Port-au-Prince. At least, that was the case up until a month ago. So, so tell me about um, where, what's going on in Petiguav now. As far as we know, the only damage to our school, last year they put a room on top of the auditorium to house computers in. We understand that's falling down. But the rest of the school is still... Usable. Three weeks after the earthquake, I asked a newspaper reporter from New Jersey, Meredith Mandel, who was traveling to Haiti to do her own story, if she would go, or at least try to go, to Petiguav and find the school. And if she found it, was it standing? Meredith said that these helicopters were flying really low overhead the whole time she was there. Eventually, she found the school. <coughs> wow. Yeah, this is this room. We fell down here. Where we are right now, this is the college, Eric Beckman. The best school in Petigal. And everybody knows about that. But as you see, for example, on the left side of the school... That all the wall fell down. This, uh, that room you see here, we had a computer's room that fell down here. The guy she's talking to is that Luke Lespinas, who Harry put me in touch with. Luke's known the Brakemans for years. He met them when he was a teen, back when they first visited Petiguav. In the 80s, he came to live with them in Michigan for a few years, and they put him through college. They call him their Haitian son. The original classrooms were solidly constructed with rebar support and all finished nicely. Kind of looks like it could be a high school in Southern California. In those buildings, they're still standing, though they do have that empty, frozen-in-time feeling, like the date of the quake, January 12th, is still written on one of the chalkboards in teacher's handwriting. But a few recent additions to the school were thrown up with cinder blocks, and they've come down. The new computer lab is just piles of rubble. But overall, the school fared pretty well compared to the rest of Petiguav, which is essentially leveled. Not only was it hit in the first quake, but that 5.9 magnitude aftershock that happened a week later 
the epicenter was right beneath Petibov. So school's kind of the last thing on anyone's mind. And I had a long talk with Luke on the phone. But without thinking, I made the mistake of starting with the standard non-emergency disaster zone small talk. Luke? Yes. Hi, this is Jane. Oh, yes. How have you been? I've been okay. How about you? Oh, yes, so so. In a few words, I would, I would say things are really bad. But uh, where I am, I'm in Petiguap, there are so many houses who destroy, that have been destroyed also, with a lot of people inside. With people inside? Yes, yeah. yes. Oh. For years, Luke's run an ad hoc orphanage out of his house, which is now uninhabitable. Altogether, since he started, he's taken in 172 kids. Right now, he has 15 boys. Seven of them he's legally adopted. So, are you? what are you doing during the day, you know, most days? You mean right now or in the past? Right now, like this week. Like, how, how are you spending your days? Oh. Okay, right now, I can say, if I ask you if it, it is right now or in the past, that's because right now we have uh, a new Haiti. This is... We, as uh, I can say, we are in another world. Yeah. It's not the same in the past. He said his boys were keeping themselves busy, playing dominoes, basketball. Help's been slow to arrive to Petiguav. Medical teams didn't get here until a week after the quake. Stores are down, and even if they weren't, Luke can't access his money because the banks were destroyed. More kids show up every day asking for help. He says everyone's just waiting, but they're not even sure what they're waiting for. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, <laughs> I feel embarrassed doing um, a story about trying to figure out what's happened to Harry's school <laughs> when there's obviously so many other questions that are more important, you know? <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. <laughs> but it, anyway, you know that, uh, you know that uh, Harry, I mean, Harry, I, m- many Asian people consider Harry Buckman as as a nation also. Many people there count Harry as a Haitian, Luke says. A lot of things he's been doing for us, a lot of school and a lot of churches, and he has, his heart is really with us. Yeah. This is one of the reasons that we are obliged to name a school after him, College Harry Berkman. I spoke to him mm. the other day, and he, he seemed to think that school could continue, you know, um, somehow, but... I don't think he understands how bad it is. No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Me, I talked to I talked to his wife on the phone. You know, for some reasons, I did not tell them uh, all I've been telling you because they are so care for the people here. You know, it's I, I felt it uh, all uh, embarrassed just to tell the, them exactly what happened. For for example, for example, I can say in particular only. We have more than 1,000 people die. Luke said it's 1,000. The official count, according to the mayor, is more like 1,100 so far. That's in a town of roughly 12,000 people. And uh, by the way, I would like to ask you also to help us in in your prayers. In our prayers? Yes, yes. So we hope that you, you won't forget us in your prayers. I like a lot about this story. I mean, I think um, you were so hampered by crummy, two sets of crummy tape. Like, both of your subjects are really hard to understand. 
You know what I mean? Like, you really had a lot of work to do in this story as a narrator. Mm-hmm. And I think you did it. I mean, I think you, like, take us through. I liked the moment of where you said that um, your dad had, had pitched this to you before the earthquake, and then then the earthquake hit, and all of a sudden you found yourself wondering about this university that you weren't even sure actually really existed. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that was that was my favorite part, was to come at the end, and, like, then now we care about a university that actually I've never even, in a town mm-hmm. I've never heard of. Um, I really liked that. I feel like I'm on American Idol. <laughs> okay, so um, so it's time to vote. Mm-hmm. We have heard all the stories. Uh, just to review on what those stories were one more time, it was uh, my dad's story about the suit on the train, Lisa's story about the funny funeral, Nancy's story about the Erie Canal, Alex's story about corporations as people, Robin's story about her dad's rotary phone-controlled car, Alyssa's story about her bubby's deathbed boredom. <laughs> Sarah's story about uh, Christmas and her daughter and her mom. And Jane's story about uh, the college in Haiti. Um, okay, so... Are there criteria? Yeah, there's definitely criteria. And you should consider all of the criteria when I think thinking about there is, well, there's just the expertise there's entertainment, um, level of difficulty. Yeah, how, how hard was the pitch from the parent? Yeah. If you had to listen to one again, what would you listen to? That's a good okay, way to think about one. it. Yeah, I know. And for me, that, that would narrow it down for me to, to Lisa and Robin. That would narrow it down to me to Lisa and Nancy. Yeah, Lisa's story about the funny funeral, Nancy's story about the Erie Canal. For me, it would be Lisa's story about the funny funerals and Robin's story about the car. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm going with Lisa. I'm going with Lisa, too. I was going to say Robin. I'm torn between Robin and Jane. R- Robin's story about uh, the dad's car and yeah. Jane's story about Haiti. Why? Why those two? Well, I, 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 going into it, I was like, oh, it's Robin. Because it was just felt like such a solid story. Uh, like, it, it just... when you, well, <laughs> Not like that usual crap we put out here. <laughs> yeah, it was like... I mean, I'm not a fan of This American Life, so I don't... <laughs> I don't... I don't like seek it out, but if I have to listen, like that would have been pretty good, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, but uh, no. Um, but then with Chains, it's like that is such a like it goes in such an unexpected place, and it was hard. I I am going to make a, a little push for Nancy here as well, mm-hmm. just because okay. Erie Canal that is that is, that is hard. hard. That is really that hard, is and I feel like. Contrary to some here, I feel like I did learn quite a lot about the Erie Canal. I did too. And um, totally entertaining. So I feel like she really hit the three, the three criteria. Yeah, but remember the first like minute and a half of Nancy's piece, which is just like those incredibly boring piece of factual information. I, it's all a, a, a red herring. To, to so the song hits it's you in like the a, service of the song. It's totally in the service of the song. I, I appreciated the the stagecraft of that. Okay, so I'm just going to take a little score here. So I'm, I'm voting Lisa, Julie. In an all-around package, kind of best-in-show kind of way, I sort of en- I enjoyed Lisa's the most. Okay, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go for Robin. Alyssa? Robin. Sarah? After pushing Nancy, really. I'm really torn between Lisa and Nancy. Uh, Nancy. Okay. Um, Seth? Jane. Jane? Lisa. Okay, Robin? Lisa. Okay, the final tally. Lisa, you have four votes. Nancy has one. Robin has two. And uh, Jane, you have one. Congratulations, Lisa. Congratulations, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks. 
have fun with your parents. Yeah. By the way, they have to stay with you. (laughs) (laughs) You're simply the best. Better than all the rest. Better than anyone. Our program is produced today by Sarah Canning and myself with the greatest documentary production staff in radio. Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Our intern, who's already making our stories better, is Brian Reed. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Music consultant, Jessica Hopper. Audio engineering for today's show by Paul Ruest. Thanks today to Tom Grasso and Craig William, Karen Bierman, Allison Gopnik, Mark Dye, Mike Blank, Adam Davidson, Mark Zebon, Paul Chevney, Tim Sandifer, and Bert Newborn. And Lisa got some help from Edgar Bergen, the author of The Definitive Guide to Underground Humor. We got the idea for our radio story contest from the Planet Money podcast, which has done a couple of great ones. They're at www.npr.org slash money. Special thanks today to our parents, especially the ones who we interviewed who didn't make it into the show. Don't forget to go to our website and vote. We really are curious what the audience favorite is for today's show. We want your vote. The web address is www.thisamericanlife.org. At our website, you can also listen to Alex Bloomberg's complete story, the one that we cut off in the middle. Uh, If you happen to be an iPhone user, there's also a link at that site to our new iPhone app, which gives you all 400 of our episodes at your fingertips for just three bucks. Uh, The app also has amazing extras like uh, David Sedaris' first few radio stories, or I also interview Terry Gross, and she interviews me. And there's a free behind-the-scenes video of our show. There's an amazing cartoon uh, slide story done by Chris Ware. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our 400 episodes by our partner in all this, Mr. Tori Malatia, who does not understand why Lisa Pollock's funny funeral story should win number one. What was so funny? What was so funny, miss? I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Barbar Drovish was a good lay. PRI Public Radio International.